Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Welcome, Regenerates. Um, excited to give you another deep conversation, this time with Richard Simpson, uh, who I actually met through uh, Dr. Delton Chin. And so we're sort of... Uh, in a way, this is kind of a follow-up to the episode with uh, Dr. Chen about the Global Climate Reward. And um, Richard is a, an architect uh, involved in computer science, uh, has been a politician. He's, uh, he's calling in from Brisbane, Australia, and uh, has worked in uh, New Zealand, um, uh, I think he was a council member in the city council for Auckland. Um, yeah, and he, he's been very active with this uh, concept called Digital Earth, which is kind of the idea of creating a digital twin. Um, very has a strong intersection with Earth observation science and sort of this emerging field of sort of geospatial, um, this emerging field of of geospatial information and science. So, um, yeah, he and I jam a little bit about sustainability, ethics, um, the architecture for the future, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. And uh, I'll, I'll make another plea for those of you who may have an extra spare moment and enjoy these uh, long-form conversations at the edge of the movement towards planetary regeneration. Please take a moment to go rate the podcast uh, leave a review and uh, share with a friend. Um, it, it really supports us to to bring uh, high caliber guests. And uh, I've been looking at the um, just some of the stats, and we're getting fantastic uh, listenership uptake. So please take a moment to uh, to to share uh, your experience about uh, about the podcast. Have an excellent time listening to this, and have a beautiful day. Welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, uh, Richard. It's so great to have you. I'm excited to chat. Uh, before uh, hitting record, we were just talking about the very wide um, breadth of different topics that are, are very exciting to dig into. So um, do you want to just take a quick moment to introduce yourself and, uh, and we can dive in from there? Sure. Yeah, my name is Richard Simpson. I'm actually speaking to you from Brisbane, Australia, and uh, it's would be probably 30 degrees Celsius. I can't translate that into Fahrenheit for you, but it's a lovely day here, clear skies. And uh, so yeah, my background is, uh, I, I have a company that's called Metamoto and we've been providing consultancy service on fairly large projects. So projects such as the Cross River Rail project here in Brisbane, we're doing a lot of work with utilities and with cities about sort of looking at moving them across into the you know, digital twinning, uh, and again, sort of bringing all these sort of di different data together so that we can be expressing uh, models in ways that we can be having sort of real-time interaction and everything else, so the digital twin sort of world. Uh, I've been involved with that sort of space for many years and uh, in the area of computer visualization. Rolling back, I started off as a biochemist and I loved biochemistry, but I got involved with looking at glycolytic enhancement factors of parotid saliva. So it wasn't very good for a pub conversation and things like that, but it was quite interesting. So then <laughs> I fell in love with computer graphics. And so uh, that was sort of coming at the time. So I got into coding a lot and then I went off and started my master's in computer computer graphics. 
uh, at Otago University and thought I'd become a computer graphics person when I grew up. And then I was told one day to learn computer graphics is like being a teacher learning how to teach, but having no subject to teach. And this uh, <laughs> friend of my parents who was a professor of earth science, he said, here, look here, boy, go and get yourself a real career and get, get yourself a meal ticket. So I looked at engineering, I looked at all sorts of different things and uh, chose architecture. So I've spent my life trying to rationalize the three sort of areas of, of interest. And I probably sort of summarize it in the sense that uh, biochemistry and looking at metabolic pathways, that sort of thing, it's the ultimate complexity. You've got multidimensional dynamics that are taking place. You've got sort of changing equilibrium points and it's a complex adaptive system and nothing else really matches the complexities of, of that that I'm aware of anyway, perhaps the universe, but anyway, we'll deal with terrestrial things here. Uh, computer science and certainly computer graphics is a form of literacy and it's a very important literacy to be able to express ideas and things that going forward and uh, mm -hmm. I love the ability to go forward and I read sort of software to do look at skiography which is the application of shading and shadowing and looking at dwell times of shadows and that sort of thing and uh, that was sort of what really got me into it that you could create a, 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 an alternative reality and yeah, around sort of these things there, and you were dealing with sort of Fortran 77 or C++ and things like that in this sort of fairly abstract way to synthesize all this, this reality. And then architecture was, was great. And I sort of justify architecture as it, it really taught the idea to look at the world in a big, a big picture perspective and then come down to the details. So everything is possible to architects. That's why they frustrate the engineers and they frustrate the surveyors and everybody else but more sort of focused on sort of studying at the detail and moving up. So it's the big picture down. And I've always found that that has been quite useful. So I've been involved with a number of series, a series of startup companies. So I did my first startup when I was in my 20s, which was the arguably the first computer graphics firm in New Zealand. And we got involved with some of the early movies and uh, animations, as well as sort of looking at architectural projects. We needed to, to use these, this, this technology around the clock for all the different things that we could use it for. Uh, and then sort of got involved with various other sort of ventures after that. But uh, I became a politician uh, and got elected onto the Auckland City Council and became the chair of transport and also economic development. And uh, that was an interesting episode. And we went through it and restructured Auckland to bring it all from eight cities into one and very much pushed for rail and other sort of projects. So Auckland's very much an isthmus geography. So if any of you have been to Auckland in New Zealand, it's the largest city of New Zealand. It's not the capital. Wellington is the capital of New Zealand, but uh, Auckland's got nearly, it's a third to half of New Zealand's population, depends on what you call Greater Auckland. But it's a beautiful city. It's got 50 islands out in the Hauraki Gulf. It's got 52 volcanoes. The last one went up 600 years ago, which happens to be the largest one, Rangitoto. And it's got three stunning harbours. So the Waitemata is the, the main harbour. This is where the America's Cup will be held in March this year. And then it's got the Manukau Harbour to the south and it's got the Kuiper Harbour to the north. So it's got very, very li limited land area. So when you're looking at transport and things like that, you've got to look at land efficiency. Mm. And when we were elected, I mean, the last railway lines were built when Queen Victoria was still queen. So right. there hadn't really been much going on and everything was roads, roads, roads. So we stopped the motorway project, started another ring route sort of project and then sort of got the electrification of rail moving forward and then sort of amalgamation of the city at the end because a lot of the problems were at these pinch points on the roads. And so, yeah, that How was- How many people live in, uh, live in Auckland? It's about 1.4 million in the, in the new city there. So New Zealand's got roughly 5 million. So it's roughly a third of New Zealand, but then you could go out of Auckland and towards Hamilton. So that whole area 
if you include that area, we're probably sort of talking about half of New Zealand. Yeah, the greater yeah. metro area, sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah beautiful. Yeah. I've, you know, I've never been, to, uh, I've never visited New Zealand, not yet. I, I sort of always put it off in my travels because it felt like it was one of the places, it was a place that I would probably never come back from. <laughs> <laughs> so it's nice, but, but you do get webbed feet in the sense that it does rain a lot, but that's why it's so green, which- right. Yeah, well, I'm like... calling in from right now, I'm here outside of Seattle, Washington. So, you know, wet feet <laughs> yeah. are uh, a common occurrence. But it's a gorgeous place and uh, it's great for sailing, hence it has a bit of wind going forward, so it's good. But one of the things that when we were looking at the amalgamation of the city, we we're looking at, well, what is best practice around the world? And we looked at Toronto and that was a, an inspiration. And we mm. looked at the city of Brisbane, where I am now, and they'd gone through a similar exercise. And so, so bring it together. But in many senses, I mean, you've got Auckland and then you don't really have anything that comes close to it in size in New Zealand. So it was so critical for that Auckland to become an international city and bring it all together and then again start to look at things in a sort of a much more comprehensive way. It's still still in its infancy, if you like, it's still sort of trying to find its feet. And obviously New Zealand's done well going through COVID and Jacinda Ardern's become a bit of a poster child for, for COVID. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, indeed. I actually wanted to bring that up and ask you about just your perspective on um, kind of the intersection of um, well, the pandemic and how different people have dealt with it. And, you know, you're sitting, in, you, you're, you're coming from a country that dealt very well with it and you're living in a country that has dealt pretty well with it. Um, and maybe looking out at the rest of us and, you know, I'm calling from uh, the US which has dealt with it particularly poorly. Um, and I'm curious, from your perspective, you know, what explains the unequal distribution of capability uh, that seems to be showing itself in dealing with sort of a, the, the emergence of complexity like a pandemic in different societies? Well, I think one of the things that we've got the advantage both in Australia and New Zealand that we are, we are islands, so we don't have any other countries at our borders. And so we can lock down borders and doing things. Now, New Zealand doesn't have states, it's got provinces, but they're not like states. Uh, in Australia, we've got states and the states are pretty much uh, autonomous in, in, in a large degree in the way that they've dealt with it. So I'm in the state of Queensland, which is in the north, and uh, we've been sort of quite staunch in Queensland and we've shut the border to New South Wales. Uh, it's a, it's a left-leaning state in terms of we have a Labour government here Mm. And so they're, they're sort of much more likely to do it. In New South Wales, they're more right-leaning. And so, again, more economy sort of focus. But again, they've been sort of quite rational in terms of the way that they've, they've dealt with it. We've had some outbreaks in Victoria, um, which, again, you know, there's been lockdown there. And, you know, they're a left-leaning state with the government. I mean, they're both centralist. There's not really too much between them all. But uh, Melbourne's gone through with, I think, the longest lockdown uh, in the world. And again, everything was shut down and again, great communication. So coming back to the points of difference, I mean, one is we've got the advantage that we are island, island sort of countries, if you like. The second thing is that we've had the, the warning. So we've seen what's happened in the Northern Hemisphere and it's taken a little bit of time for it to come down to the Southern Hemisphere. Not, not much time because people travel by flights and things like that, but we've, had, we've watched what's gone on in the Northern Hemisphere and we know that if we don't sort of take these actions, we're gonna have the same sort of disasters as we've seen in Italy 
and in China and obviously later in the States as well. And Europe think, is not, is, is, is having some difficulty too, I think, presently. Yeah, and England and things like that. And then when you sort of start comparing it, I mean, you've got, uh, I think coming back to sort of points of difference, we've had leaders who can communicate. So we've had very clear communication here, both in New Zealand and Australia and each of the Australian states. Very clear, and again, science has been very much the agenda. It's been driven by the scientists. In Queensland, the Premier basically takes instructions from the, the Chief Health Officer, and they're just basically put through. There's no interference with that. It's just coming straight from the scientist, and there's no dabbling with that. So that, that's been a clear point. And then we've had great communicators, like Jacinda is a great communicator, and... Um, and the, the Premier of Victoria, he's been great every single day. He sort of sits through these uh, media conferences and he waits till the very, very last questions. It's quite tedious, but these are updates that have been given each day because they've had issues. We've been very, very fortunate here in Queensland and we haven't had, I think we've had uh, six deaths, which are sad, but that's it for Queensland. Uh, we've got a population of about 5 million and uh, we've had zero cases pretty much um, for a long time now. I uh, can't remember when we had last So case. life sort of proceeds as normal, although you're probably not letting folks fly in from New York no. City. <laughs> no, so we had, um, what's his name? Uh, Tom Hanks was probably the first case that we had in Queensland. He's been doing a movie about Elvis, I think it is, in the Gold Coast at the, <laughs> the movie place there. So Tom Hanks has been over here, and I think he was the first sort of one of the first cases in Queensland and again, we've really just haven't had sort of the numbers of cases, largely because we've had that very clear communication. We've had the borders closed off and also we've, we've used technology. So in Australia, we've had topological tracing with a software sort of called COVID safe. And so we can quickly trace. And if there's a, and we're also testing sewerage in all the different settlements across uh, Queensland. I know the other states as well. And so these are daily sort of tests. And if they sort of detect anything, they go through and they'll just pretty much shut the, shut the place down until there's, there's certainty about there's no COVID there. So very quick in response. Like there was a, a small town called Blackwater in Queensland, in the outback. Not many people there, but uh, they, they sort of flew in a team that was even more people went there to deal with it than actually lived in this small town. And they shut the whole place down, but they uh, had a false positive. So... They were very pleased to discover that later on, but it was some poor fellow who died and they, they tested him for COVID after he'd died and uh, it was positive, but then they tested again, it was negative. So, I mean, they just, they, they throw everything at it. And I think the other thing also, it may be a cultural dis difference to the United States. And again, don't take this wrong, but there is, there's rights and there's, there's responsibilities. And it's almost like we don't have, I mean, we have rights, but there is, there is that sort of aspect of communal responsibility and what's best for the community rather than for the individual. There's nothing, there's no natural justice about the individual. It's never in evolution or anything like that, but it's looking at how we sort of work as a pack and how we sort of do things together. There is a lot more sort of thinking, well, you know, we'll be in there for our mates, if you like. Uh, it's not about me. Now we'll get sort of odd individuals and there's been a bit of protesting about lockdowns and things like that, but... Uh, like I know with Queensland, we had uh, a short little lockdown. It was hardly a lockdown. We could only travel five kilometres for a, a little while uh, just because they were very scared that traces, cases would come. And then they quickly opened that up 
and we could go to the small towns, things like that. And a lot of encouragement going to the outback and all these other small towns to keep tourism going as well. That's happened place. So there's a lot of internal tourism. But uh, just coming back to what I was sort of saying about Auckland, I mean, one of the things when we're looking at Auckland is that there is a trend, and I think we're going to see it accelerated now post-COVID, but the whole metropolitanization of the global economy. So local is going to become more important than nation. And one of the things is we sort of think about nations, we had, there was a Roman empire that, that was about a, a city, if you like, in the broader sense. It, was a, it, wasn't about, it wasn't the Italian empire back then. And the idea of nationhood is relatively quite a new thing and it's not necessarily going to be something that's going to continue forward. Uh, and in many sense, it's a dangerous sort of concept. I sort of think back to who's that, that Beatle, John Lennon did that song about imagine there's no yeah. kind of words of it, but anyway, there's no nation. In a sense that these have become the sort of the, the excuse that we've got to battle and other things like that. But as we start looking at COVID and you start looking at the places that have done well in dealing with it, it's, it's the local people, it's the, it's the councils or it's the states and how they've dealt with that in a sense there. It's not necessarily about the national part of it. And so as we start sort of looking at sort of, can we start thinking more about sort of that whole metropolitanization and again, starting to rethink of cities and something I've proposed is that we could be thinking about meta-cities in a sense that, like, for instance, Auckland and Brisbane are very similar now because we've modelled Auckland around Brisbane. And so when you start looking at planning and things like that for those mm. cities, you see that's more local because you've got the local reg regulations. But then you could sort of look at urban design as being something you could share between those cities. And as we start bringing technologies and getting more sophisticated with things, we can start bringing in sort of uh, you know, the digital twinning and instead of having two cities of 1.5 million, we can get them operating as a city of, of 3 million. So it brings it into that sort of top tier international sort of city. And so we can then sort of collaborate across that because I mean, COVID's taught us that video conferencing, we can actually get a lot of things done and geography is very much for many things is not really relevant anymore. And so anything that we're not dealing with atoms, if we're dealing with sort of bits and ideas and concepts, doesn't have to be in the same sort of place. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And again, sort of starting to look at more resilient supply chains built around sort of the digital twin, because the digital twin gets born, you know, in the supply chain, in with the manufacturers and goes through the whole life cycle of the things that it gets introduced into. Well, so let's, um, let's take a, let's take a, just branch in the conversation over to well, I mean, so there's a couple of things that you said there that I think are really interesting and maybe worth highlighting. One is just sort of this transition, perhaps, that's where in which the nation state is significantly less important than it has been for the past 75 or, you know, 100 or 200 years. I mean, it hasn't been very long that nation states were really all that important, I don't think. Um, I don't know where you draw that line exactly. The Treaty of Westphalia. I guess would be how most people would think about it. But um, so, is the nation state rising again in you know in in the twenty first century as sort of the the most important political unit, perhaps, and and maybe the larger? I, I mean, the term bioregionalism I think is worth kind of considering here because cities aren't necessarily just the the urban area. There's sort of there's a whole food shed, there's a whole watershed. In many cases, cities have, you know, global catchments of resources into their, you know, municipal um, food food economies into the economic system. So, you know, and that was true of Rome, 
right? Rome was bringing Rome. Rome was subsidizing the grain dole was coming from Egypt every year uh, to keep all the plebes happy. <laughs> so, you know, in a sense, you know, nothing ever changes. There's nothing to or I don't know. Maybe it's more like Mark Twain's. You know, history may not repeat, but it rhymes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so I'm curious your thoughts in terms of what you know. I mean, okay. So, if we're going to enter in, if the 21st century may be the the, the century of the city state uh, reborn, but at the same time there's sort of this, this emergence of remote work. And it feels to me, at least in the United States, there's been a fragmentation and a, like the, the romance of the cities is at an all time low at this moment. You know, you, you walk around New York City and it's boarded up. And, you know, of course we've been having lots of unrest um, and there's a big yearning for social justice and there's a lot of things happening in the streets in the United States right now. But by and large, cities look less and less enticing as places, places to live. And that may be a short-term thing, but it also may not be. And so I'm curious just how you're thinking about that. You know, are cities actually going to be where we end up um, in the 21st century or maybe not? Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, I think there's certainly going to be a lot more sort of going people leaving cities and we're seeing this already now in Australia is that uh, now with you know, Zoom or video conferencing, you don't have to be in the major centres. Uh, and yeah, you can be that, zooming in from your farm, you know, yeah. and you can spend the you can spend the afternoon shearing your sheep or playing with your kids out on your farm and you can spend the, the morning, you know, in a board meeting or, you know, yeah, just just anywhere collaborating, communicating with people either in the city, nearest city or, you know, a city across the world. So it's a differently, a different, there's something different starting to take place. It's like we always had this capability or we've had this capability for remote work for a number of years. It's been getting better, but, but something happened. It's sort of like threw us 10 years in the future, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some interesting work that's going on here. There's a group in, in here in Brisbane at a work. We have Boeing doing a lot of R&D in Brisbane. No. And uh, there is another company that, anyway, they've set up, they're doing drones, supersonic drones, and they can deliver uh, medication to anywhere in the outback of Queensland and things like that. And we're talking about Queensland's, I think it's bigger than Texas, but anyway, it's a massive state. Um, and uh, they can deliver medication and, or food to anywhere in 30 minutes. And uh, they're just doing prototypes at the moment. They're saying they could probably get to match two uh, with these things, which just sort of blows my mind. But I mean, this is happening now. How's the sound pollution for that? Well, <laughs> secondary sort of concerns, but I mean, just that, that concept that there's atomically, we can be sort of, you know, very sort of connected as well as by bits we're connected as well. Yeah. Uh, and then sort of the other thing is, you know, we're sort of seeing some big, uh, you know, just in the Lockyer Valley, just out of Brisbane, they're looking at doubling the water that goes into that area. Uh, and that sort of increases the potential. It's some of the richest uh, soil in the world. It just is a, you've got sort of a very dry winter here. Mm. And then you get you know, heavy rains in summer uh, is the sort of typical climate. But uh, if they can extend that through and they've got some different areas, we've got a lot of sun, so solar energy and things like that, looking at that for powering sort of the energy for 
generating the pumps and sort of also generating water can sort of make some big differences to these areas. And also giving the trends of sort of re-inhabitation or inhabitation of the broader landscape that you're seeing as well. But it's also there's the understanding. I saw this brilliant um, map and it had the indigenous people, the Aborigines of Australia, where they lived. And it showed them scattered pretty much evenly right across Australia and just absolutely remarkable how they were living in all these. It wasn't just the places where we have cities today. Yeah. And then the next map was sort of saying where people live in Australia today. And it's just all these sort of hotspots, the, you know, the capital cities. And pretty much in, in Australia, if you know, you've got Queen, like in Queensland, we've got one city that's, that's Brisbane. And then it's sort of a, then you've got a number of other sort of cities that are around Brisbane. And then there's very tiny little places, about 10,000 people in these other cities scattered around. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very focused on the southeast corner. And similarly with the other states as well, the major cities are very much the focus and then there's very much people. I mean, Perth is a great example in Western Australia. It's like that. And then outside of that, there's very little people that are, that are living. I mean, there are, there are communities, but it's largely for mining and other sorts of things like that. And so I think that we'll sort of see a softening of those sorts of things there and allowing people to do things yeah. uh, in sort of these lifestyle. But I think we're also, when we look at the cities, you know, you've got these big corporate head offices. Are we going to be looking at those sort of buildings maybe sort of turned into hospitals and other sorts of things? Because, I mean, a reason for living in a city is that you've got close access to hospital. Um, obviously, with the larger population, you'll have the police and other sorts of things. So there'll be various other emergency services to support you in that area. But if you don't need all that, you can be living out in the country. And again, you've got the airports, but if you're not traveling, you don't necessarily need to have the airports close to you. So, you know, choose, choose a beautiful part of the world. and uh, Just go and live there. And New Zealand's become sort of very much, it's become a, a, a bunker, if you like, for a lot of people from North America and uh, from Europe. A lot of people are going down there and finding there's a little bit of paradise. And uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, it's of course it's to to escape into one's own own private little green bubble, pastoral bubble, and you know, with a friendly friendly culture around and uh, beautiful landscape. I think is is attractive, although you know maybe also it's sort of maybe problematic to have people sort of uh, checking out of their societal obligations to you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the larger tangled messy problems that we all in some ways need to be responsible for but i definitely can understand the impulse <laughs> you know well the whole expression of place too is going to become very important and you know like for instance you know the indigenous languages of australia are topological languages so they they have song lines and that, that stories are told and shared generation to generation that and similarly with the maori in new zealand and so the word uh, fenua is play about place, but it's also the same word that's for placenta. And so there's that sort of tight binding about your identity with the place. And so there's two lineages, if you're Maori, you've got your lineage of the place that you come from and your forebears come from, and you should be able to tell that story, like your songline of the place, and again, the food and things like that, but also telling the story about your ancestry and going forward and backwards and forwards and that. And so we're in a strange way as Western society, almost coming back to that, we've got sort of the capabilities of a digital earth that can tell us the stories about the places. And we can sort of recite those and share those in a technological way. We don't necessarily have to remember it all, but it can be there with a, in a 
persistent sort of way built up in these stories there. But similarly, Ancestry.com and those sorts of things, we're starting to be able to sort of tell the story about our forebears. And then we have things like Netflix that have movies about Vikings or about sort of the Wild West and bits and pieces. And these things can sort of help sort of bring a bit of reality to today on demand to describe sort of ancestry. So I think we're sort of working towards that as we're getting those sort of those lineages because it's all about how our identity with places. And again, the place making, how do you represent the places with the arts? And there's that soft sort of fusion between the arts and the sciences that are going to become so important for that. You know, telling the deep stories about place and discovering those stories as well requires science, but it also requires the ability to tell the stories. And uh, so, yeah, this is a fantastic. I mean, I, I think it's a very rich subject. And um, I, I oftentimes wonder, you know, um, what is lost in translation when we, um, you know, between an ancestral, between having a song line in which there's sort of a, an, an ancestral lineage of embodied information and the um, nuance of many eons even of, of the human greater than human world interacting and sort of the understanding and, and great deep capability that humans, I think, sort of intrinsically have to, yeah. to sort of have a, a big mind that is um, very expansive and dynamic, maybe, maybe more so than we oftentimes in our reductionist perspective in, in, in sort of Western views of, of the mind and sort of human capability, maybe we don't even really remember what humans are able to do. And so, so like holding that, holding an image that um, I have a sense of, but I certainly don't pretend to be able to embody. Um, and, and then contrasting that with this sort of, this Western approach of the digital big mind and having the, the ability for on-demand um, representation of the of digital earth and the digital twin and the on-demand story of you know, maybe there used to be a bard who would sing the story back to life and now we have got Netflix <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. What, yeah, what's the, um, yeah. is there anything lost in that translation? Is the fidelity high enough in these digital representations to give us wisdom? Um, it's just a, you know, maybe an interesting prompt for our conversation. No, it's a very good point. I mean, the thing is that by looking things on Netflix is that somebody is expressing their views to you. You're not necessarily, you're not expressing back. But I think that's one of the important things. And again, it needs to be part of our education system. And I know in the States, you guys do this really well, that people are, are, are articulate and they can express themselves or they can express their ideas very well. And I think that's going to be very important to be able to express yourselves because, I mean, part of it is we're also going to identify ourselves as say more with place and more with who we are in many dimensions with that as well. And I guess the other thing is we talk about digital earth as being sort of like creating a, a super sense for our survival. So in the Pleistocene, the, you know, the previous epochs that we've had, we've evolved through that with you know, the sense of touch, the sense of smell, sense of taste and hearing and sight and things like that and these are sort of things that we've evolved and other animals have as well to survive mm. and so for instance a bumblebee can see ultraviolet light which we can't see but 
if we have a, a digital earth and we're looking at how we're going to su uh, survive the Anthropocene as a next epoch, uh, not to say we necessarily need to see ultraviolet, but, but looking at maybe infrared and other sorts of things that we want to be able to sort of see, we can do that through the technology, through augmented reality, through remote sensing, through satellites, and again, that collective knowledge. I certainly, resonate, I certainly resonate with that personally. And um, I oftentimes have expressed my perspective of, of what, you know, in our little slice of this larger movement uh, at Region Network, I, I sometimes say that I feel like we're, we're regrowing a vestigial sensory organ that, mm. that, that used to be cultural. That, yeah. that there's some sort of indigenous cultural capacity of, of sort of a collective attunement with place that, yes. that lived through song lines and ritual and you know um, many different ways in many different places, but that at least in the West that we've, uh, that that has been lost in some ways and that we're sort of you know striving to regrow our capability with this organ and it's a cultural one, it's a collective one. It isn't one that you know a, a, an individual human could expect to just have access to necessarily, but it's something, it's, a, it's about collective sense-making. So I, I, I quite resonate with that as a sort of a, um, an invitation into what these technologies, sort of what we need to demand of them, you know, yes. in a way. Yeah, no, it is, it's, it's a really interesting time, but also again, sort of going back, we look at the world with point solutions and a very simplistic sort of approach. And we've got to look at the world as a complex adaptive system and as we build our technologies for the world, we've got to think of them as complex adaptive systems. So again, sort of the open standards enabling that sort of complexity, we look at patterns, pattern languages, if you like, with respect to how we look at policies or end uses as patterns. We've got to start dealing with things in the sense that we, we can sort of build these tools to start looking at that. And also we've got to get rid of these, these silos. We've got to smash the silos that have limited sort of a lot of the thinking we've had in the past. I just sort of, after I served as a city councillor, we, we, um, I joined the University of Auckland. I head up, was the head of innovation at the Bioengineering Institute. So that was the second largest research group. And we were working with, we had um, engineers and, uh, and medical people, researchers working on this. And we're working on what's known as the Physiome Project. So if you think of sort of the, this continuum, you've got the Human Genome Project, if you like, looking at those base pairs. And mm -hmm. again, a trillion dollar project, but it's been very important for COVID and for vaccines and everything else, but also for understanding our, our health and sort of cystic fibrosis and a, a whole lot of things there. Just a major paradigm shift in medicine that, that's coming through. But also there's ethical sort of questions there. And then you've got a series of other ones, which are like the transcriptome and the metabolome and a few other ones there. And then really when you get to the protein level, you're starting to deal with the physiome. So this is the physiome going from the protein level up to the whole body. And what the physiome project is for is to look at this drug discovery and drug testing is a, is a prime role that it's played. It's got a lot of other potential uses as well. Hmm. And so looking at the, how do you build these mathematical models of the body? And again, starting to sort of look at everything from Brownian motion right up to sort of, uh, you know, the body and how it interacts with things. So, we speak about a spatial scale of about nine to the power, sorry, 10 to the power nine. And then it's got a temporal scale to the whole life of the body from the life of sort of a, a cell or whatever it is, you know, you've got 10 to the power 15. So compared to the human genome project was, you know, which was you know, magnitudes smaller and it's a 10 year project. This is a much more complex project, but we can do it probably in a similar sort of 
period of time, which is it's making good advances there. So each the, the different units are doing the brain and others are doing the, the heart, others are doing the lungs and other things around the world, sort of putting these models together. And again, very important for looking at COVID and other sorts of uh, understanding sort of testing. So we can get these, this, these uh, FDA approvals, things like that a lot quicker. And then if we go beyond the human and uh, into the world, we've got digital earth. Right. <laughs> and it is, it's part of that continuum. So what you've got, so for instance, one of the things we had um, an atlas of 10,000 lungs, and then we would look at, we would run sort of uh, generate a lung tree. So a topology through the lung and either 2D or looking at 3D. And so we look at computational fluid dynamic studies, look at how a, a molecule could be perfused into the lung and maybe a diseased lung or a lung with scarred tissue and things like that. Or we were looking at sort of uh, you know, skin biomechanics and other simple things like that that related to it all. And then we developed things like cell ML for looking at how you describe a cell and then share that across it all. Or field ML, looking at the attenuation of current going through tissues and things like that. And so these different tools that were shared in the world for doing these sort of things there. But yeah, digital earth, it sort of starts off with a spatial scale, huge, you know, 10 to the power 16 or more. And then again, on the temporal scale, you've got the, the, the life of the whole planet, really. It's, it's massive. And so again, another level of complexity. But these are all complex adaptive systems. There's really no borders between any of them, going back to the human genome and even going below, below that. Uh, but you know, we've got to start thinking of things. And particularly we're looking, when you're looking at COVID, arguably sort of what's more important to give us resilience uh, and preparedness for COVID and sort of a response would be looking at having digital earth because you could sort of get early warning about these pandemics coming through. It's going to always take time to come up with a vaccine. But if we could sort of look at dynamic hotspots, we could look at sort of other sorts of things. And, you know, mentioning before what we've been doing in Australia is looking at sort of a topological tracer. So it's through the Bluetooth. So if you come in close proximity, you can sort of quickly come back. And it's a little bit like these song lines. We can tell the song line of somebody's movements in a private sort of manner. If they suddenly test positive for COVID, you can then sort of see, well, who have they been in touch with? And how long have they, what's their dwell time with these different people? We don't necessarily have to reveal this, you know, and again, we can keep this private. And then you bring on top of that spatial capabilities, which they're not doing here, but you could do that. Obviously there's an intrusion that, that takes place with that. You're getting this very rich description of really what people are doing. And we can then start looking at sort of, you know, lockdown and things like that. So let's In talk a little bit about that. Uh, my understanding is that uh, also sort of um, South Korea, um has had very advanced um mm. tracing and sort of proximity using using you know smartphones applications which all have um gps systems and and can can be used as trackers of course yeah. um of course you know i think in the in the us obviously we're all being surveilled all the time whether we like it or not <laughs> But we don't, but most people would prefer not to know that. And maybe there's resistance to that surveillance being used uh, consciously, you know, like in the public that, that yes, indeed, we have this, you know, app and <laughs> you're, you know, if you test positive, it's going to notify anybody that your phone was in proximity, uh, proximity of, you know, over the past whatever week or, or whatever there's a huge pushback i think in the u.s against things like that or at least there's a perception that there would be um privacy issues i'm curious you know i guess i've always assumed that australia kind of had a similar kind of rugged 
individualist sort of Anglo um, approach to, you know, privacy concerns and things like this. Maybe not quite as extreme as in the US, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is maybe, you know, some of these technological approaches that include advanced surveillance through smartphones and things, even if there's a privacy layer, you know, um, um, are easily are more easily accepted in Australia. I, I guess I would ask, is, does that sound accurate to you? I think so. It's a bit hard to compare to the states not, not being there, but it's. Yeah. Uh, I think that, as I was saying earlier on, it's like there's much more of a community sort of spirit. And again, I mean, I know in the states you get lots of um, you know, natural disasters, but I mean, just this year, 2020, we had bushfires, which were rabid bushfires uh, across Australia. And then straight after that, we had floods. <laughs> and then after that, we had COVID and things like that. Okay, it wasn't as, it was, yeah, we were all told. And then it's all over. <laughs> so we, we have those there. And again, there's that sort of awareness that, uh, you know, we're not individuals. We're up against this world that's a lot bigger than us. And there really is no sort of, you know, my right, my right to bear arms, that sort of thing. We don't have that sort of mentality by the majority of the population. Maybe just way out in the bush, huh? like very rural. Oh, if you, yeah, if you're out in the outback, of course you're gonna need a shotgun because uh, we have a lot of snakes here and things like that. And, uh, you know, and you need to have shotguns and that's fine. And again, you know, it's expected that people on the farms, but, but you don't have people toting guns in the streets and things like that, you'd be arrested straight away. And uh, nobody that I know of owns a gun unless they own a farm and things like that, but people just don't have guns here. It's not sort of what you need. You're not going to be digging trenches around your house and uh, reinforcing yourself against things. It's just people don't look at it that way. And also there was a, a, a mass murder that took place in Australia some years ago now. And straight after that, that's when they said, right, everyone handing guns and uh, that was fine. I mean, we move on. Now there'll always be people in the fringes that sort of, you know, will be sort of on this, my right to have arms and things like that, but you weren't born with that right. <laughs> it's like, there's responsibilities of things. But also, I mean, just starting to think of sort of how we would survive. It's quite interesting to watch the evolution of the connected autonomous vehicles and sort of the advances of that. And you think of that as a little microcosm of digital earth. And so you've got sort of all these sensors and actu actuators, other sorts of things in the vehicles. And, uh, you know, they're dealing with these very rich models, so sub three centimeters and 3D models of the world around them. But they've got these semantic layers, you've got the price, the behavioral layers, and other sort of things like that. And then you've got this interconnectivity that's going between these there. So they, in essence, they've created the super sense. It's about their survival, and about the safety of the vehicles, because if they didn't have it, one is I don't think laws would allow these vehicles to go into the streets. But it's like when you start thinking of that and you apply that across into these COVID sort of things. And again, sort of the apps that you could use for COVID tracing could be used for parking outside of a theater with car parking and things like that so that you can you know, book your rights out or it could be used for bushfires or it could be used for warning you of flooding and things like that or tsunamis or earthquakes and things like that which had a lot of those in New Zealand. Um, it becomes sort of part of your super sense that we're talking about. And as long as it's sort of done in a sort of a sensible sort of way, and again, the capabilities of blockchain or directed acyclic graphs and again sort of starting to look at you know a digital twin is to a cyber currency if you liked what blockchain is to a digital thread uh we can start looking at a digital twin as a sort of another way of starting to sort of really twinning ourselves with the environment we've got and securing it and making sure that we're not sort of um 
exposing it unnecessarily to things that would be uh, out of our controls. But obviously, yeah. we, want, we want to know if we want to be rescued or we want to be uh, if we're in a sort of a, a problem situation. Yeah. So, so the term digital twin, you've been saying, uh, you've been using a little bit, and I'm curious to sort of dig into that a little bit. I'm, um, you, are, are you familiar with the, the concept of uh, non-fungible token in the blockchain space? No, but please explain. Uh, okay. Well, so um, a non-fungible token is, is a digital, is a completely unique, uh, you know, sort of cryptographic, cryptographically unique and cryptographically secure um, uh, token that it is uh, not like anything else. And so they're used to uh, represent like artwork, for instance, or even be artwork. You could even create a non-fungible token that itself is the art. <laughs> um, uh, but they're also commonly, you know, uh, in the blockchain space, it's the sort of basic unit of thinking about kind of secure, a secure approach to the metadata that's, you know, that I, I believe is in the non-blockchain world that the non-blockchain digital world, I think people are referring to sort of what people, you know, the crypto world is referring to as NFTs, I, I believe, at least in the physical world, would be a digital twin. They're also used in gaming, you know, like yep. to represent an, you know, like a the, the sword of Azagoth or the whatever thing that, you know, it's okay, it's unique and potentially could be transferred. I could sell it to you and, you know, maybe it could even move to a different platform. And in some world, there, there's all these concepts of sort of creating more um, exchange between different digital platforms and, and, and bringing sort of a user autonomy. So, you know, and in the blockchain space, it's all about your, the management of your own private keys, right? And it's essentially, it's, it's a physical, it's a digital representation of a bearer, a bearer asset that is unique and non-fungible, uh, that, that's non-fungible. Instead of like Bitcoin, which is fungible, it's one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, one Satoshi is one Satoshi, they're all the same, you know? Yeah. So, so they're, they're sort of, you know, I mean, you know, they're classes of assets, if you like. And again, yeah. you know, the, you what a digital twin is, but we're also looking at, um, you know, the, the value of a digital twin, you can sort of be built upon trust. So how, how is it representative of the world outside of the digital world? And again, sort of building up those and, and through veracity or through provenance or through the, whoever's created these digital twins can build value on into that digital twin. Yeah. And so the so, concept in the blockchain space is, is sort of founds that onto an NFT and NFTs, you know, you can sort of, you can add you could sort of aggregate digital signatures that represent attestations or certifications of, you know, you have somebody who mints it and, or, or, or an algorithm that mints it, you know, and, yeah. then, and then someone could verify that it indeed represents the place, for instance, you know, uh, so in, in our domain, we use the concept of NFTs as the basis of, it's sort of our basic unit of account for our, credit classes, which are essentially a digital representation of a quantification of ecological state, mostly carbon, but it, you know, it has to relate to a specific place on earth. It has to give the, the people who are, you know, purchasing or retiring it, the information about the methodology used to verify it, 
that it was indeed verified by someone, um, you know, who has purchased it and retired it, all of the, that information needs to sort of be securely accessible. And in some cases, um, you know, encrypted and only to be revealed to someone who has the keys and in other cases public, depending on the, depending on the asset. Fascinating. No, I mean, this is the sort of the, the atom, if you like, the seed of which these things can go forward because we could sort of look at a, an asset or an asset in an asset register as a seed for how a utility could then sort of look at the digital twin. And again, you've got the, the digital thread underneath the hood <laughs> that's dealing with all sort of the, the artifacts and the whole of life sort of aspects of it all. But also, I mean, one of the things with the digital twin, it's not just the, the spatial or the geometric sort of twinning, the topological twinning becomes more important. So it's like the twist, the system twinning uh, so that you're understanding how the mechanisms or things like that work with things. And uh, we've done that on a few projects. That's sort of a model essentially is what you're talking yeah. about, um, right? So you've got the data, you've got the model, you've got the metaphor of how that expresses itself. Mm -hmm. And also the, the analysis that could be sort of, you know, allowing how it actually performs and things like that. Uh, in situations and then you know things like for instance self-healing uh, which we're seeing in autonomous vehicles and things like that so you're getting so much sort of data that's being collated and companies like here here uh, owned by all the european car manufacturers and intel they're building all these fancy algorithms and things like that for that self-healing so so much rich data that's coming through you can start updating those models uh, as you're getting sort of more updates and again through that veracity is going to give you greater trust in, in the data as well as some other sort of work that we're busy doing at the moment is looking at when we, you know, with the plate fixed datums that we have today. And then after 2023, we were looking at earth fixed datums to be moving sort of data across to, so you got that, it's not a great term, but a dynamic datum of things being stuck through. So you've got obviously the global navigation satellite systems and you've got then sort of the veracity that comes through GLONASS or GPS or through the Galileo constellation from Europe or the Bidu one from China. You're getting that really, really rich location information across that, across a sort of a moving or dynamic sort of digital twin, if you like, of the things that we've got here. And, you know, very soon, I think we'll be down into sort of the centimetre type sort of space of being able to locate things in time and space. Obviously, we've got to be capturing the epochs as we, we capture that, knowing when it was captured, but going forward. But um, really yeah. great stuff happening in the... Um you know, larger blockchain or applied cryptography space around that, that probably would be interesting to you uh, in proof of location that um, because a lot of the G a lot of the geospatial, like the GPS systems are pretty easy to spoof, as we've seen in recent <laughs> US Navy crashing into ships and whatnot uh, moments. Yeah um there's there's been other attacks like that there was one recently in a harbor that was a, a tanker that got spoofed and you know crashed into the shore or whatever so anyway there's there's uh this project called foam okay which is actually founded by some really amazing architects who who created a proof of location protocol which allows people to put out little beacons and those beacons are essentially, you know, um, transmitting a location and mm -hmm. uh, you can pay them to get proof of location. And so they're creating this incentive system for harbors and things like that to, to have a counterpoint to the, the geospatial positioning systems of satellites to be able to sort of like create these proof of location systems within 
um, more densely, you know, shipping lanes and cities for autonomous driving, you know, autonomous vehicles and drones, all of these use cases need rigorous, they need some rigorous proof of location. And, and uh, so there's sort of a business model there to be able to sort of like hang your, you know, hang your, your shackle out the front door and, uh, you know, go put a bunch of, um, you know, these little beacons in busy places and bootstrap it and then get paid over time for providing that service to people. So it's a very interesting sort of intersection with what you're talking about. No, it's absolutely fascinating. Because I mean, one of the things that often speak to people about geospatial is that you've got sort of, it's like a hamburger. And on the bottom, bottom bun, you've got sort of the indexing system. It's a catalog, a universal cataloging system about where things are in the world and time and space. But on the top end, you've got then sort of the ability to see maps, which are a lot more sort of intuitive or seeing things in with augmented reality or 3D, whatever you like. But it's just that, that you know, the metaphor sort of aspect of it all. And, you know, those two elements become important. It becomes sort of then sort of the place to start mastering a lot of your data around that because there are, you know, it's a far safer place to do it rather than a filing clerk metaphor where you're putting arbitrary sort of things to things. And again, it's beyond sort of, human concept about, you know, spatial is about sort of the human concept. But I'm thinking also about sort of when we are talking before about COVID and, you know, Dr. John Snow, who was the famous, I think he's known as the father of epidemiology in London. He, in the 1850s, he produced maps um, of London when they had the cholera outbreak and then determined that it, there was a pump in Soho that had contamination. And when you look at what, how he was applying these technologies I'll not say there was any technology, but then it's just doing maps. But it's the same way we're doing maps today. Yeah. And what we're missing is the things you're talking about, again, sort of bringing that sort of cohesive indexing system yeah. that brings in that veracity so it gives greater trust. We can get the systems with provenance. And so if we had to sort of make that shift in 2021 <laughs> towards doing this more effectively and then smashing those silos that we spoke about before and then creating a silo a continuum between all the different disciplines that are working on things. So be it be an air conditioning people that you were speaking about in the last sort of session with uh, with Lucas and uh, Binet, uh, right through to other sort of skills. So you've got sort of the um, the doctors and the, the the health carers and things like that, but also there might be the engineers and all sorts of people. So putting all that sort of data into this, this common continuum, in other words, a digital earth, um, we're going to get better decisions. We're going to be able to sort of, you know, it becomes that super sense that we're really wanting to achieve. Well, and I think there's an interesting thing here, which which maybe is worth uh, bringing out into the open, kind of the elephant in the room. Are you familiar with um, um, Adam Curtis's uh, documentary, Hypernormalization? No. I would highly recommend watching it. Um, and to, to everyone listening, if you haven't um, checked that out, I think it's, he, he's sort of, he essentially predicted, you know, and this was already well underway when he, when he made the film, but he predicted really beautifully what was happening um, and what is happening with this sort of uh, information bubble and, you know, people, especially here in the States, and I think we have a, we have a particularly strong disinformation campaign being perpetuated on on the on society right now in the United States, um, but you know this this film just to give a quick synopsis, you know, um, it, sort of it creates common uh, a common 
root in the 1970s between the rise of Islamic extremism, the rise of Donald Trump, and the rise of Vladimir Putin. And he weaves it all together, noting, you know, uh, referring to some of the really important things to know about sort of Vladimir Putin's approach to um, disinformation and the role in Russian society of that, uh, uh, that's been normalized and he's sort of calling it hyper-normalization, which is the process by which the majority of the population ceases to have any trust in any information. Mm. Because, you know, like uh, in Russia many times, and this has started to, you know, probably kind of in a way happened in the States where the, uh, where a, you know, in it, a, a counter, um, a group that is sort of radical and activist and trying to, you know, disrupt Russian society to turn it to be more liberal or to turn it to be more communist or whatever it is, you know, they basically support all of them. They fund all of them, but then they like twist the message a little bit and then they let everybody know that they've all been funded by the state so that you can't trust any of them. So 100% of all of the body politic has then been funded by the state. <laughs> so, wow. so, so sort of like social media, 100% of all social media we're imbibing right now is suspect. Whether it's true or not, it's very hard to say. Did you, do a meet, did you click on something that was clickbait? And this is my big fear about the digital earth concept, which is that as societies, Western societies are having their, their sense-making ability eroded through this process of advertising-based surveillance capitalism and disinformation campaigns in order to disrupt civil society, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you get people believing all sorts of crazy things. People aren't, people have their own filter bubbles. They're also believing strange, you know, conspiracy theories. What happens when we try to present sort of a globally unified uh, view of the of of the singular thing which we all have in common, <laughs> which is Earth? We all live on Earth. <laughs> We're all part of the same superorganism from that perspective. Um, I, I have big questions. How are we going to ensure that? I mean, both that people trust it, but yeah. also that it is trustworthy. And, yeah. and that, that global index of data that we can all pull from and sort of the public service, the public good of high fidelity, high quality information about earth systems, you know, how do we, how do we build that in such a way as, as to earn the buy-in of civil society to participate with that knowledge commons. And that's just, that's something I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. It's something I think, think a lot about and I'm quite concerned with. Yeah, no, it's a very good thing to be concerned with. And again, you know, the, there's some very deep ethical issues as there were for the Human Genome Project as there will be for Digital Earth. And uh, we published, actually it was uh, Springer Nature published the Manual of Digital Earth uh, in January this year, and we've had nearly a qu three quarters of a million downloads of the Manual of Digital Earth. It's a big tome of a thousand pages, but if you Google Manual of Digital Earth, you can probably find it. Um, and Springer is the publisher, uh, but there's a chapter in there on ethics, but the other sort of side of it is that 
is I think if we look at sort of a, we have to trust, I mean, it, there's a question around the ontologies and other things that get built around the digital earth. So the conceptual layers that are there, there's also ethical AI. That's another sort of thing that's, that's coming in, which can be good and sort of, a, of of concern as well. But I think that if we can explore, just again, thinking about the connected autonomous vehicle, and we're going to be trusting our lives, the lives of our families, as we hop into one of these vehicles and go around, and uh, we just do not want to have misinformation. And so I think we're going to be moving more to a culture that's got greater reliance upon the trust of technology and science. Again, we can become very vulnerable again with what you're talking about, the hypernormalization. But I do think that um, there'll be sort of brands or whatever it is, people will appear which have these sort of trust trust me sort of thing, just like when you're following Twitter, there'll be certain people that you'll trust and others that you won't. Um, I think there'll be sort of that that branding of trust. Well, it's probably a better way to describe it than that, but um, there'll be sort of those trust marks, if you like, that we can sort of follow uh, that will do that. And again, with spatial data, you can see it. And if it can overlap with that, there's, there's levels that with our own senses that we can say, well, it feels sort of right and go for it. Okay, we can become very vulnerable with that as well. But um, no, it's um, it's a journey that's, I guess we're heading on. What it's again, why are we evolving it this way is to create a super sense for our survival. And if we can survive, then it's successful. If we don't survive, well, it's the end of a question there. But how are we gonna deal with the complexities of the pandemics? How are we gonna deal with sort of the complexities of climate change? How are we going to deal with these different concurrency of these different events that are taking place? Like we saw in Haiti, there was an earthquake and then there was a cholera outbreak. Or if we go back to the First World War, there was a war where 10 million people were killed and there was influenza where 40 million people were killed that followed it. And so not to say this is sort of a roundabout way of answering your question, but there, are, there is a survival issue, I think, that we've got. And again, we need something or other to become a barometer for dealing with climate change and just really at the safety of ourselves and our families. So we will trust it from that point of view because it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're dealing, dealing with that low level. And as it goes back to those higher levels, yes, I think there'll be issues, but uh, we just need to sort of see what evolves from that. Yeah, 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 approach it. Well, so I, I, I'm sort of picking up that maybe there's this concept that there'll be a competition. Essentially, there'll sort of be market competition for, um, veracity or trustworthiness um, yeah. in some way and that um, you know maybe there's also there's many different ways that societies deal with essentially the same issue you know of, of uh, appointing someone who has a position to sort of look out for that and and has sort of their skin in the game so to speak um, you know societally their reputation their livelihood all of these things it, it, in exchange, they get those that, that position and privilege in exchange for looking out for certain things. So that's all likely to continue to to operate. Online voting referendums and things like that, there'll be sort of a lot more of that. And again, sort of, I mean, we're still sort of, if you look at the agrarian cycles that our world still operates in, you know, mm -hmm. we have election cycles, we have all sorts of different things there. Well, maybe those things will change. It'll be sort of like somebody's as good as the, sort of the, the value of their trust or maybe everybody gets elected and it's just those who are the most trustworthy are the ones that uh, that get to have the sort of say on the big decisions and if you haven't got that sort of ranking you've you pushed out to the side there's certainly in the you know in the in the 
cryptographic network or blockchain space, there's certainly a lot of emphasis right now uh, and a lot of inquiry into this sort of um, reputation, durable reputation through things like NFTs, where you have a certificate and you can sort of build, you know, non-exchangeable reputation that's associated with an identity that's, you know, that's sort of cryptographically secure and you can steward yourself. And I do think that's one of the sort of primitives or building blocks of all of this. Yes, without, it is. without the sort of parlance, because it's one of the primitives or building blocks in, a, in those societies in which this vestigial organ of cultural resonance and adaptation with place, one of the yeah. things that existed was reputation and durable reputation over time and a tight-knit society in which you know, people could remember how you behaved and if you respected the, the law of the land and how you treated your neighbors and all those things. And, and now we, we, we've, we've lived in a, for a little while in a sort of global society in which you could kind of run away from that. <laughs> um, and it seems like now the world is small enough again that we have to figure out how to rebuild that capability so that you know, um, and it always interests me, you know, I, I think about the sort of the EU right to be forgotten stuff. And then I think on the other hand of this sort of durable reputation uh, and, and they seem to be in conflict with one another as maybe representing different ethical, different and maybe equally important sort of ethical considerations in the midst of all of this. It's very, it's very interesting. There's the, yeah. Oh, there's going to be other things. I was just thinking when I was served on council, there was uh, an apple moth problem that we had in Auckland. And so properties would be sprayed. And so whether that was kept on the record for that property that had been sprayed or not, because people were concerned of other impacts that that, that might have, or if it was carcinogenic or whatever it is. So again, there's this persistence of the data as well and decisions that get made on sort of, well, are you going to keep that or not? Does it come out? And how do we tell those stories about places? Because we may know, we may assume, make assumptions today, but down the track, we may find that this has got some relevance to maybe outbreaks of cancer or whatever it is that people may find about places. So um, there's some very fascinating arguments and ideas that need to be sort of worked through. And I think also some of the fundamental things will change. Like for instance, one of the things, you know, when you think about the Black Plague, the Italian Renaissance followed on from the Black Plague because it really shook up a lot of the sort of the social values and everything else and for other sort of things. And it just created a situation where the Renaissance could sort of blossom from that. Perhaps after this COVID, when we've had such a sort of a punctuated equilibrium point in, in our whole history, we're going to be looking at things in new ways. We spoke earlier on about looking at the metropolitanization of economies and things like that cities becoming more important than nations, maybe nations just disappearing or just being there for things like the Olympic Games as a bit of a, a clustering of different sort of cities or groups of people together to compete with one another. And that's really the role of a nation there. But other than that, we're just coming back to more that tribal aspect that, that come with it as well. And then again, sort of our assumptions around, I think about Le Cabousier and with looking at uh, buildings as machines for living. And that was like the hip thing when I was at architecture school. And I, you know, it's like you're building these, these architectural things as machines for living. And again, we sort of don't necessarily want to look at that sort of way. And again, sort of these sort of concepts we talk a lot about now about these smart cities. Well, nobody wants to live in a smart city. You want to live in a, a, 
a livable, a beautiful city, a thriving beautiful. city, a, a healthy city, a yeah, yeah. A dynamic city, a, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So there's a lot of those sort of things will go. And again, we'll be sort of mature enough with our concepts of the technologies of how it works together. And then hopefully we'll be mature enough with respect to how with our education systems, we can encourage that cross-discipline sort of development of ideas and working together. Like I mentioned before, with the Bioengineering Institute, with the engineers and with the, with the medical scientists collaborating together. But also with that, we were, we were doing work with Weta Digital on movies and so, for instance, the movie Avatar came from a team that was working under Mark Sager, involved with the Bioengineering Institute, and they were, they were doing musculoskeletal modeling and things like that, and skin biomechanics. And so that was, gave the special effects onto the Avatar. So Mark's got a couple of Oscars that he's won, and uh, he keeps them in the bottom shelf. He wants a Nobel Prize. He did his postdoc at MIT, and he's a medical scientist sort of thing, but he's got these Oscars that he's collecting from this sort of fluffy industry for Hollywood. Uh, just as a, as a side sort of thing to the fact that this is building the Physiome project, uh, which is absolutely going to be fundamental for the health and well-being. And the Physiome is a, a subset of Digital Earth, which becomes the critical infrastructure for our future survival. And the survival of humanity has become critical for food security. It will become critical for water security. And obviously, it's the critical sort of uh, dashboard for climate change to help us you know, inform our decisions and make sure we've got that science that's over the shoulders of all the politicians that's coming through and being heard uh, and verified that this is what's going forward. And coming back to your earlier questions about sort of whole thing, it's that communication from our leaders that's so important and a digital earth can become that sort of forum for that communication to augment the leadership. Yeah, well, I, should, I certainly, you know, I really think it is enormously important to have that, um, to generate a shared experience. And humans are uniquely poor at seeing and conceptualizing without a lot of training. And it takes us a long time to gain the, the insight to understand exponential systems, you know, yeah. and exponential growth. But, but if you have uh, a mathematical model and you can visualize it, and you can visualize what happens with, with the exponential system, it then becomes very easy. Even small, even, you know, toddlers can then understand it, you know, so yeah. there's something interesting about the visualization of many of the complex problems that humans are quite brilliant at pattern recognition and engaging when you can see it. Um, but it's, you know, but verbalizing it or communicating without the sight, it's very hard. And so I think, that the invitation to have these sorts of interfaces, you know, the digital earth and all the way down to the, you know, sort of microbiome level and back up again to be able to visualize these things, I, I do think can really upgrade our societal sense-making and decision-making for sure. Yeah. No, I think back to when we were doing the Physiome project, we had, we developed some software for looking at virtual surgery and it had tactile and other sort of capabilities within it. And uh, Siemens got excited. They say lined up all these surgeons and we then presented to them and had wonderful computer graphics and things like that, and it looked pretty real. And the first surgeon looked at it all and he said, this is great, but he said, I really want a number. I want the number one if I'm to operate, the number two if I'm not to operate, and say number three if I'm to sort of come back and sort of look at more information that relates to it. Just a number. I don't want to see all this. 
And uh, it sort of brought it home to me is it's just that that metaphor is so important. So how do we distill that all that visualization down to something rather, which is not just necessarily a shiny little digital twin of what's out there, but it's like looking at the London Underground map. I mean, I'd much prefer to catch a train with that rather than looking at something that looks like a model railway set <laughs> that's moving around. It's just distilling it in the way that can express it to spark a neuron in your head that can bring the action there. And again, it may be sort of different metaphors for different situations or for different people, for different cultures. And uh, I think that's fascinating. I can bring the arts and the sciences in together to sort of get a lot of these sort of discussions worked through and how do we express ideas about it all because it'll just be the, such a rich sort of model that, that will be there under, underneath it all. Yeah, well, it's exciting. It sort of feels like a new library of Alexandria moment of you know yeah. all the world's information in, in it, but you know, sort of, I guess the joke being we thought the smartphone was gonna be the <laughs> library of Alexandria in our pocket, <laughs> but it turned out to be people watching us and manipulating us for our money. But, you know, so, so it's, a, it's a razor thin pathway, this, this pathway that you're speaking about. It's sort of like we, we have to thread the needle to have the, to generate societal wisdom and to come out the other side of this, this mo this sort of harrowing moment of, you know, emerging and converging global crisis. And at the same time, you know, it brings up every single ethical um, quandary that we could face as a society and, and demands our attentiveness there. So it's a very um, um, dynamic, subtle and complex, um, invitation you're making, I think. But, but it does fit that meso hierarchy of needs. It's the survival aspects and then going up to the whole enlightenment at the top, um, or whatever the top, <laughs> I could always forget what that is, but it's, it's uh, looking at how, yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Again, Self-actualization is, yeah, is Maslow's upper level there, which, you know, I always wonder, you know, is actualizing the self really the top or is so, it? Yeah. Is, it might be more of a, there might be something else up there too. So <laughs> yeah. 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 Brilliant. Well, um, this has been a really fantastic conversation, Richard. I, I feel like we're, um, we're at a pretty, like, I'm imagining that we've left listeners with a full, with a fullness that, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you're, if you have other things that you, you'd like to explore or if you're similarly feeling like, there's sort of a fullness here to the conference. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. And again, thank you very much for this opportunity, Gregory. And uh, you are just, uh, you've got so much knowledge about different things. I've learned a lot today from all the things that you've been mentioning. And I'll, I'll go back and uh, look up some of these things that you're talking about. But, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, we can only be positive about the future. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, we've got to just make sure that we can sort of get that future a better place for all. And, yeah. uh, and then think of ourselves in a much holistic way with the planet. We're all part of that sort of continuum. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm in heated agreement with that. And I, yeah, I really appreciate your time. And I've also learned a lot. So it's been a very fruitful dialogue. And I'm excited to be digging in more to the digital earth um, work that you and your colleagues have been putting together. And um, yeah, it's such a cool initiative that you know, I, I, I should have been aware of sooner, but I'm so excited to have found now. 
Well, there's a couple of things that are coming on. There's this, this is the big book. This is a thousand, but that's, we've made that free. So the International Society of Digital Earth and Springer. Yeah. Uh, so that's freely to download or you can buy it through Amazon. Uh, and the other thing is there are two journals. I've got one of them here. And these things come out monthly, whatever it is. This is the, this one's called the International Journal of Digital Earth. Mm -hmm. There's another one called Big Earth Data, I think it is, or there's a name similar to that. And so they're both published by Taylor and Francis for the International Society of Digital Earth. So, you know, it's, it's, it's creating it as a big science, uh, the next big science, really. And uh, it's absolutely fascinating when you start looking at the breadth of the different types of papers that go into these journals and uh, the different topics that they touch upon. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I'll, I'll have a think with our team about if we want to take a crack at getting some of our work published there, because it certainly is the sort of certainly feels like there's some uh, kindred thinking, some some convergent thinking going on here that um, be interested to join the, the community. And as I was saying earlier on, there's uh, the Russian Academy of Sciences are hosting Digital Earth in the, in the next month. Uh, and that's going to be free online. It was going to be originally hosted in Russia, but um, it's not. It's the first time it's actually been held in Russia. Uh, last year, it was in Florence to celebrate the, uh, the uh, 500 years since the death of Leonardo da Vinci, who's often regarded as the father of digital earth because he actually invented the globe, I believe, and also the first projection systems. Extraordinary man. <laughs> mm. uh, and then next year, it's going to be in Salzburg. Uh, so it's... Uh, it's in June, July next year, middle of next year in Salzburg. Uh, so it's, it's in different places around the world. But uh, this year with COVID, it's going to be free online. And uh, um, you just have to Google it. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's a great, great invitation for folks to tune in to, to that, this sort of emerging new holistic science, kind of converging computer science and, and uh, geography and geospatial technology and earth observation science. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's just all of these things coming together right now, which is, it's very exciting times. Um, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be interesting to think how we look back at 2020 and uh, it's, uh, it's going to, there's a lot of sadness, but then the other side is that maybe sort of a, a changing thing for the world. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we're certainly waiting here with bated breath in the United States with, uh, I, I, I keep saying, you know, every, every week I'm like, it's got to be peak global weirding now, you know, but uh, somehow I think it may, we may still be on the crest moving upwards. <laughs> yeah, well, our thoughts are with you all over there. And uh, we, we get the news each day, obviously, about what's going on in the States and in Europe and things like that. And uh, our thoughts are with people out there because, uh, We've been very fortunate here. And uh, I mean, there's been tough decisions that were made, but they've, they've hit them promptly. And again, that communication, I think is critical. And again, with these technologies, how they can help, a, help that communication and allow us, you know, allow us to live in a world that's more resilient to these risks. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you for those well wishes. And I, I think we could certainly use it. <laughs> it's gonna be an interesting, uh, time here, the sort of the interregnum period here for us. So we'll see how it goes. Um, good. Well, uh, yeah, I look forward to staying in touch and um, I'm excited to, for the potential to collaborate with you and Delton more and uh, just, yeah, really grateful for the connection and your time. So thank you. And likewise, Gregory, thank you so much for this. Mm -hmm.